Now this evening we cannot go over the uh, general introduction to these last three books of the Bible, nor the introduction to the book of Haggai, nor any of the other matters that we brought up last <coughs> week to do with the authorship and date of this book or of the background of the prophet. We are going to confine ourselves this evening to the key to this book. It is quite clear from even the most superficial reading of this little book that it is all to do with building, or more correctly, with rebuilding. You haven't got to um, uh, look very deeply into this uh, prophet to discover that the theme of his ministry is really essentially all bound up with the rebuilding of the house of God. And it is probably um, due to that very fact that this little book has been so strangely neglected. Because people have felt that somehow or other um, it is all to do with uh, bricks and mortar and a building program that belonged to thousands and thousands of years ago and that has now been completed and finished. And therefore, although it is very interesting because uh, um, it's an example of fulfilled prophecy in one sense, uh, it has very little uh, to say to us uh, at all. That, of course, is wholly untrue. Only by a very, very superficial reading of the book could it possibly be thought that this prophet has little to say to us. In fact, the truth of the matter is that Haggai has more to say to us in, in actual fact than many others. The whole book is centered upon the recovery and rebuilding of the temple. In fact, there is not one of the various prophecies in this book that is not somehow directly related to the building of God's house. Even the last prophecy in chapter 2 from verse 20 to 23 that does not in actual fact mention the temple is uh, re related quite directly to the house of God. It is simply because the rubber ball, whose hand laid the foundation and whose hand would uh, see the top stone onto it, it was because he had given himself so thoroughly uh, with, or in face of the possibility of completely jeopardizing his official position and career and family, it was because of that that, that, that this little prophecy, so wonderfully comforting, came from the Lord. Really, it is a little commentary on that verse in, um, in Proverbs, that those that honor me, I will honor. So every one of the messages in this little book is in fact directly related to the rebuilding of God's house. And although this book is so small, we find ourselves at the heart of a gigantic battle. There are only, I think, I'm right in saying, 38 verses in this whole book. 
but in fact it bears no comparison whatsoever to the gigantic backcloth of battle uh, that um, is the background of this little book. We're at the heart of a tremendous conflict. In fact, it is a conflict that goes right back to the beginning of time. It goes right back, I would say, before even the beginning of time, when that anointed cherub that covereth said, I will be like the Most High. There was something in the heart of Satan that rebelled against God's eternal purpose. That, that wanted somehow or other to take the place of God's Son and of God's people. For God from before the foundation of the world had, of course, not only his son in view, but a bride, a counterpart, if you like, to his son. That's God's whole concept in humanity. <coughs> and this, this little book touches, it, it, it touches the, the focal points of the conflict of the angels. It's not just to do with a battle over bricks and mortars. Seemingly, it's centered, this, this battle is centered in a building program. Uh, it is uh, centered in uh, a building that we call the Second Temple. And uh, it all seems at the first look that, uh, well, it's just something quite localized. But in fact, if you look into Scripture, and as you look back, you will find that the, the, the battle that raged over the recovery and the reconstruction of this second temple was only part of a huge battle that had been fought backwards and forwards since time began. Carried out of heaven into the Garden of Eden. Carried out of the Garden of Eden into the whole world. It raged backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards until this day. And it is, in fact, a battle over the purpose of God. Is God going to have what he wants? What, in fact, he purposed? On the dark side, it just seems as if there's a long sequence of failure and defeat. But on the other side, on the other side, there is a long sequence of the grace of God triumphing not once, but again and again and again and again. Now this little book is set right at the heart of this great conflict. And that's why you've got the atmosphere of battle. The people are despondent, the people are discouraged. They're not, they're not the kind of people who just want the world. These are not a people who just uh, not the least bit concerned about the things of God. These are people who have given up everything in Babylon. They've given up prosperity. They've given up position. They've given up a, a cozy security. And they've come back. But somehow or other the battle's been too much for them. And other things have, have uh, taken over and, uh, uh, and taken precedence. Now, what is this purpose? That this people, this remnant of the people, as they're called in this little book of Haggai, are in. It is this purpose of God that you and I are in, as well as those in the Old Covenant. It is that the Lord might dwell 
amongst men. That's the simplest way we can put it, really. What is the eternal purpose of God? That the Lord might dwell, not walk, not visit, but dwell amongst men. But let's say it in an even clearer way. It's more than even that the Lord might dwell amongst men. It is that God might find his home in men. Only amongst the dead. It's for this reason that he's redeemed them. It is for this reason that he reveals himself to them. It is for this reason that he provides for them. All go right back to the very beginning. To find God walking in the Garden of Eden. He longs for fellowship. His whole yearning, the, the cry of his heart is that, is that this man, this woman, might go on to take of the tree of life and enter into the very being of God. That God and men might become fused into unity. Even when the fall has taken place and uh, the collapse has come and man is driven out, then you find God. God's seeking to find this one or that one. You find him walking with Enoch. Enoch walking with him. You find him later, later with Noah. He shuts Noah into the ark. He's so concerned that somehow or other there should be some saved. And then you go on to Abraham, the friend of God, that God visited and talked with and communed with, how he took him out. And so you can go on and on and on. You come right down to the book of Exodus and you have the tremendous Passover and the, and the crossing over the Red Sea. What's it all for? The lamb slain, the blood on, on the lintels, what's it all for? You might well ask it. Well, it all comes out a bit later in the book of Exodus, where the Lord reveals to Moses the pattern of heavenly things. What is this pattern of heavenly things? It's the tabernacle. And as soon as that tabernacle is set up on the sand of the desert, for the first time in Scripture, the glory of God touches the earth. It fills the whole tabernacle. And then you get the book of Leviticus. How you can stay in touch with God. Now that God has come to dwell, how you can stay with him. And if you go on right the way through the book of Joshua, the possession of the land, and so on and so forth. You go right the way through Scripture, you find that this, this, this desire of God to find a home amongst men is the central theme of Scripture. We're saved into a purpose. Our salvation is not the purpose of God. Our salvation is a means to an end, to get us back into the purpose of God. We are called according to his purpose. That is, we are called uh, according with the purpose of God in mind. In line with the purpose of God. Now this is the whole concept of God. And you take later on the great battle that there was over Jerusalem. Why was it, do you think, that Joshua and his men were not able to take, uh, not able to take the stronghold of the Jebus? Why was it that Satan held on to that little rocky citadel for so long, right the way through, hundreds of years until David appeared? It was David who first took the citadel that we call now Jerusalem. Because, you see, the devil was fighting a losing battle. He must stop. We must stop this dwelling place of God's country. And if you trace through scripture, you will find that this battle over the tabernacle is a tremendous one. If the devil can't stop the tabernacle being set up, then he'll try and part the mercy seat from the tabernacle. 
He'll do everything in his power somehow or other to ruin and frustrate and wreck God's purpose. He does it. When finally you come to Solomon and the building of the temple, it seems as if God has got his way. It's glory, absolute glory, the fulfillment of God's, I was going to say God's dream, if you like, God's, God's passion. And then, of course, you know from then on, right the way through, you take the two books of Chronicles, or you take the two books of Kings, and you find a tremendous battle begins. No sooner is the house, the great temple built, established, and a battle begins almost immediately. Solomon falls away from the Lord, and, and the story begins to decline. And, it, and the central thing, the, the heart of this conflict that goes rages backwards and forwards over the land is the house of God. You remember when, um, when the great civil war took place? between the northern tribes and the, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. What was it over? It was not only over the throne. It wasn't that someone wanted to usurp the throne. It was also over the house. The northern tribes wanted to have the house of God at Bethel, which means house of God. And finally, when the great uh, division took place, they set up a new priesthood. And a new house at Bethel. You see, you see what the battle was about. It's all once more focused upon the dwelling place of God. And it is interesting that the chronicler, he points out that every king whose heart was right with the Lord, who um, watched over the house of God and, uh, uh, you know, guarded it and saw that its services and so on were, were kept, as they should be according to the law of Moses, the law of God, he was blessed. And everyone who in any way allowed any compromise whatsoever, that compromise, sure enough, became the weakness that in the end was his ruin. So you get the great battle. Until finally the house of God itself becomes a center of prostitution, a center of idolatry, a center of the, of the most evil and debased form of Canaanite worship. And finally, you know what happens. God destroys it all in fire and sends the people into exile. Now, you see, there's been a great battle. What is the heart of this battle? It's the battle of God for a dwelling place. You see, God has redeemed the people because he has in mind this dwelling place that he might find his home amongst those redeemed men and women. So, you see, in the Old Testament, this, uh, it, 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 this great purpose of God is symbolized in the tabernacle and the temple. Symbolized, now mark it, because in fact God does not dwell in a building at any time made with hands. But nevertheless, it's symbolized. There he was found. And the, in, in the, under the Old Covenant, the temple or the tabernacle was the home of God on earth. It, it was his dwelling place. It was the point where he could be found, where he would manifest his presence, where you could hear him speak if you liked. Any man, any woman wanted to find God, they had to travel to the temple. There they would find him. 
of course, in times of breakdown, he did appear to people outside. He sent angels around. But normally, it was within the temple that he could be found. That was his home. If you wanted to find him, that's where you find him. You see, this is very important for us to understand. It was the means of his manifestation. It was the resting place of his glory. There above the, above the mercy seat was the Shekinah glory. The sometimes came out and filled the whole tabernacle temple with a glory that, that made everyone stop. No one could even say anything. They could only get on their knees and worship. It was the resting place of his glory. It was the gathering point of the nations, if you read the Psalms. How the Psalms and the, the Psalmists and the Prophets rejoiced over this, that Zion, Jerusalem, the, the house of God was the gathering point of the nations. That was God's whole concept. It had become, as it were, the great missionary center of the whole world. That was God's great concept in the Jewish people. And particularly in us. That's what Jesus said when he came in. He said, this house shall be called, he said, my father called this house a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. God's great concept, the gathering point of the nations. It is the house of God which to be the heart of world history. Everything was judged by, by and from the house of God. Now all this may seem to you to be rather extreme, but you've only got to take your Bible. You've just got to go and take your Bible uh, and, uh, and you'll find out that all this is so. You see, look at it from another point of view, if you can't look at it from that point of view. Within the walls of the tabernacle or the temple, there were certain things found. Now, this is very interesting. Listen to me carefully. Within the walls, you could find certain things that you could find nowhere else on the whole earth. What? Within the walls of the temple at Jerusalem, you could find what? The altar of atonement. There, not by virtue of the blood of bulls or goats or other creature, but because they prefigured the Lamb of God, the great atoning death of Christ, there God forgave any man, any woman, who came and offered something upon that altar. Listen more, you'll find something else within those walls. You'll find the labor of regeneration. That great, that great brazen labor of water, which speaks of two things, regeneration and renewal. There you could find it, only within the walls. Come further in, you'll find on one side as you came in to the tent of meeting, you'll find a great candlestick, all of gold. It was the light of life. Where could you find the light of life? Only in the tabernacle, only in the temple. It was there. That great symbol of the light of life. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have what? The light of knowledge? No. The light of intellect? No. The light of a natural mind? No. The light of life. There was oil in that, in that candlestick. Oil of the life of God that symbolized the Holy Spirit. It was light that came from life, the light of life. Look onto the right side. What do you see on the right hand side? You see a table. It, is, it symbolizes the bread of life. Are you hungry? Do you need sustenance? Do you need to be kept? 
then there you'll find a table that's only within the walls of the temple could you find that table and there symbolizes the bread of life look straight ahead of you and what do you see you see golden altar of incense and all the time incense is rising up in clouds of smoke before the great veil what is it it is the never ceasing ministry of the high priest never ceasing lord jesus has gone into heaven and ever lives to make intercession for us but it is not only it is not only his intercession it is the prayers of the saints See that in the book of Revelation. The prayers of the saints going up like incense into the presence of God. It comes out of travail. It doesn't just mean that you have a little time of prayer each day. It means that it comes out of a ministry of travail. It comes out of a ministry of suffering. It comes out of a ministry of communion. It comes out of a ministry of intimate prayer fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Prayer in the name. What does it mean? It means prayer because you're a member of the body. It means prayer because you are in Christ. It means prayer because you're part of Christ. When you pray in the name, it doesn't mean you add a little charm to the end of your prayer and say, now I've got the name of the Lord Jesus like a little amulet. This should do the trick. It simply means, Lord, I'm not asking in the name of Lance Lambert. I wouldn't dare to do that. Even if you thought a lot of Lance Lambert, you don't. You, you couldn't answer. If I prayed the most eloquent prayer, Father said, I'd love to answer that prayer, but I can't do it. Not in that name. But let Lance Lambert come and say, Oh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus. and the Father said, I'll do that. That was the weakest prayer I've ever heard. But still, I'll do it. What was that name? Jesus Christ. Oh, that's, that's it. The boy's in Christ. He's in Christ. So I can answer his prayer. Prayer within the walls of the house. Prayer within the walls of the temple. You see, you could go. He went through. There was something more. Beyond that veil, you couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. But nevertheless, it was there. Beyond the veil, there was a mercy seat. In that mercy seat, or under it, was the ark of the covenant. And in that ark was the law. Kept, not broken. Unbroken law. There were some other things as well. There was the little golden pot of manna. And there was the rod, Aaron's rod, that nothing. They were all, all a picture of Christ in his perfection. And above that, that, that ark, there was the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat was a great cherubim with their wings touching. And what is that mercy seat? I don't suppose many in this room have ever realized it. That mercy seat is the throne of God's throne is a mercy seat. Where do you find the throne of God? Within the walls of the temple. Now all that was discovered within the walls of the tabernacle or the temple. You see, it all symbolizes something. That's what I'm getting at, you see. It all symbolizes something tremendous. Oh, of course, it's only bricks and mortar. It's only furniture. It's only cloth other things as well. I mean, in a way, God is not bound by these things. But you see, all of it was one great composite, comprehensive symbol of something which God yearned for and longed for. It was a shadow of that which was to come. It was but a prefiguring of that which God was going to bring in. But nevertheless, even Satan hates even the figure. 
Why? Because of the coming of the Messiah. Mm. Of course, it's 400 years off, but with God, it was according to God in the book of Haggai, yeah, it's a little while. Just a little while. Not in the battle. But he's got to get it done. Well, you might say 400 years. I have a good job. They didn't know it was 400 years. I can just see what some people would say here. They thought the Lord's coming was 400 years off. Have a much easier time of it. You see, people are like that. But you see, the whole thing is that's not the point. God says this has got to be done now. Got to be done now. It's imperative that this work of reconstruction be completed. Now, all this is filled with the most important instruction for us in our day and time. You see, for the, the, the Old Testament figures of tabernacle and temple have been wonderfully fulfilled in Christ. He has in himself absolutely, completely fulfilled all the meaning of tabernacle and temple, but not only, not only in him alone. And this is the wonder of it. You see, it is fulfilled in him and those who are joined to him. Those who by the grace of God alone have been placed by God in Christ, they with Christ become the very eternal dwelling place of God himself. Now that's why I think it's wonderful to understand the meaning of the name. In the name. You see, Jesus has a name, but I've got his name. God dwells in a way in which he's never dwelt in anyone else in Christ. But I'm joined to Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit, not two. One spirit. This is wonderful. We've got the same name. Father says to me, don't you dare come in your name. I know your name, of course. I know you by name. But I don't want you coming to me in your name. You come to me in the name of the one that you're joined. You're one. The two shall become one. They become one. Share the same name. You see, the tabernacle and the temple, they, they prefigure Christ and his body, the church. We've only to read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the book of Acts to see this. It's only too clear. You see, you see you've, got a, you've got the Holy Spirit. What happens? Well, that's what we don't do. I mean, uh, the, the, beginning, the very beginning of Matthew, the beginning of Luke, or where do we start? Where do we start? We start with the Holy Spirit coming upon a woman called Mary. And uh, um, the Lord Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, begotten of the Holy Spirit. But a little farther on, there's something marvelous that happened. Mark begins at that point, and so does John. They begin at the baptism. And we see the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit came down out of heaven like a dove and settled upon him. And the voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, you see, this is very important. In an upper room, a risen Christ spoke to his disciples. He breathed on them. And he said, Receive ye 
in whom ye also build it together for a habitation. That word is a home. A home of God in the Spirit. They've got it. Jesus Christ and we have become the home of God. He is the chief cornerstone. And we are living stones built in him. Now, is that so, or is that uh, taking it too far? 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter 2, verse 3. If ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, unto whom coming a living stone, that is Jesus, Lord Jesus, Rejected indeed of men, but with God, elect, precious, ye also as living stones have built up a spiritual house, and so on, and so on. The Lord Jesus and his own have become the house of God. They've become the temple of God. That's all. You see, it's absolutely wonderful when you see it like that. That's the eternal purpose of God. That's the thing he wanted from the beginning of the world. From before, I personally, although I must say it's more influence uh, than uh, actual uh, scriptural foundation, I cannot help but feel that somehow or any other, it was this that irked Satan. Thing that he said, I want that, as the anointed cherub that and ever since, Satan has fought for what? For his home in men. That's all. Satan fights furiously for the possession of men. You've got a great battle over humanity. On one side, you've got God with his great original concept for the good and blessing and joy and satisfaction of man, that they may come into him and become part of him. On the other hand, you have God's great archenemy and adversary who fights day and night to possess man. And then when he possesses them, he makes them as true and evil as himself. Because self is the principle of the whole thing, with him and with everything he touches. Well, anyway, now you see, the point of all this is that the Church of God is conceived and constituted at Pentecost is today lying waste. It's in ruins. Well, no good saying it isn't clear. It's very largely ceased to function, of course. If you want to talk about it in awfully sentimental and blah da terms, uh, you can get over a lot of this and but you've got to face the facts. The church as God conceived it, the church as God constituted it, Pentecost, and as we see it working out in the book of Acts, has ceased to exist. It's hopelessly divided. It has, it has become hopelessly compromised. It, it, it ceased to function, at least as it was intended to function. It may function in a kind of way, but it, it's not functioning as it's intended to function. It ought therefore to be clear to us that we have here in Haggai, at least in principle, the very problem that confronts God's people today, the church, eternal, uh, universal, uh, invisible, heavenly, made to a large degree, where you see it, made to a large degree, be, remain unaffected by this departure. But the point is this, 
the church as God would have it expressed and functioning here on this earth is lying waste. That's the point. And because it is lying waste, today, in the 20th century, we have more money than we've ever had. We have more organization than we've ever had. We have more campaigns than we've ever had. We have more prestige and, and reputation than we've ever had. We have means like the radio and television and much else that they never had in the past and we've never been as powerful or powerless. We only had to have a handful of New Testament and turn the whole Roman Empire upside down. And what was the result? You've got something holy spiritual and holy heavenly. Oh, yes, of course, you've got Corinthian situations, you've got Laodicean uh, situations, and much else. But I mean, the whole point was this. it was the church. There may have been a lot that was sordid about it, but it was the church. Nicolaitanism, which is the vogue of the day, had not come in. It was just beginning. All that organizational, clerical, stiff, and official, had only just begun to emerge and Jesus said of it, Nicolaitanism, which thing I hate, that started to rear its ugly head already. So you see, the real point of the, of, of, of the battle is this. The church has not only departed out of God's will and concept, but has become a Babylonian mixture. We are in the days of the exile. The church has departed. She's there, but she's in exile. She's taken on the Babylonian colorings of her surroundings. <coughs> now any man in the street can understand the Christian chapel or church or organization. They know how it's run. They know how it's governed. They know how you get in. You've got a membership. Why? Yes, especially. We understand that. We have a, a society for art. We have a society for music. We have just the same thing. We have a membership. We sort of uh, ask people to join us. We have a little sort of talk with them first, find out what they want, and then we get them in. We pass them in, you know, all kinds of ways and means and methods. But the world knows how do you get your money? How do you get your money? Why don't you just send the plate down? Just appeal? Put a little notice outside? The world understands that. Perfectly understandable. That's how we do it. How, how do you govern? Well, we, we have a little business meeting and we elect so and so and he gets a majority. Uh, he's in. Otherwise, he's not in. Which is the world we understand? That's how we do it in our stamp collecting club. We call it philatelists. We do the same kind of thing. Well, that's all understandable. But now, listen, you laugh at me. You say, oh, but now, just what you're going to after all, you mustn't be fanatical. And you've got to have a certain amount of organization. You've got to have a certain amount of position. And someone's got to uh, govern and so on. Yes, all right, all right, all right. Let's look at the church. Let's look at the church at Pentecost. What happens? We suddenly find that something organic starts and you can't stop the thing. Well, they have a, they make a mistake in my estimation. They call everyone together and they say, we're having a great row about the money. Um, we've just got to have some people look after it. Uh, we who are, who are given to God's word cannot uh, look after uh, these things. We'll, we'll, never, we'll never have any ministry of the word. So everyone has a little form. They say, yes, yes, yes. we'll appoint so and so and so and so and so and so. I mean, they made a great mistake, didn't they? 
because only Philip was no sooner appointed a deacon and the Holy Spirit whisked him away and made him an evangelist. They couldn't stop it. The Holy Spirit had constituted him an evangelist. They tried to make him a deacon. They just couldn't do it. The Holy Spirit was so in charge of him, the thing was so organic that you couldn't do it. There's an overall. There are many other examples in the book of Acts. Where did they get their money from? You don't know. Of course, it's written book in Paul and see that there are certain things here. But you never saw outside anywhere. Did you? People had a, had a question. This is, these people, aren't they the fishermen? How then can they speak with such a thought? At Pentecost, they couldn't answer. They all heard it in their own language. I think it's been done. You see, it was inexplicable. The very nature of the church is inexplicable. It, 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 it just cannot be understood by, by the, the man in the street. He sees it. He, 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 in measure, he can understand it. It's flesh and blood. But it's like Christ. He can't explain it. One moment you look at Christ and say, there's no man, isn't it? Isn't he Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't he the carpenter of Nazareth? And the next minute, suddenly, he casts out demons, and the devils recognize him and run away from him. People say, who is this man? He calms the sea. And they say immediately, well, he's flesh and blood like us. He was asleep in the boat. He's just like us. He gets tired. Now look at him. The whole storm has become like a meltdown. You see, he's inexplicable. Well, the church should be as inexplicable as Christ. We have to walk into the sea wall. <coughs> I'm not saying that we should always go down to the shore and get a fish to find the money to pay the taxes. But if that was the kind of thing, which is utterly inexplicable, which is the very inherent nature and character of the church. And when it's lost it, it's no longer the church. It's become something that becomes a compromise with the world and by the world that the, it, the world is in. Now what are you supposed to do with all that? In this matter, the arch enemy of God has successfully prevailed. So, in many ways, you see, uh, Haggai reminds us that God cannot fail. At the end, or towards it, all his energy is focused on the recovery and rebuilding of God's house. In preparation for the coming, the second. The whole point is this, if you want to admit failure, you do. I'm not going to go face the Lord one day and say, well, uh, and the Lord says to me, did you admit failure? I love to hear these Christians. They say, well, you can't admit that. You can't admit that. God's great concept of church is God. Now we've just got to go on and learn what God's going on personally. We've got to sort of somehow or other find our own way before the Lord. I think rubbish. Nonsense. Do you think that the enemy will ever be able to go to the presence of God and say, Ha! Ha! You failed! You failed! I frustrated your purpose. You wanted something through which, like a body through which you could reveal yourself and manifest yourself and express yourself, but I utterly frustrated you. Never. The devil himself becomes the instrument by which God achieves his ends in the end. God, God cannot fail. That's why Haggai calls him the Lord of hosts. 
Just really saying to the to the people, now look here, look here, this isn't just a God Jacob, this is the Lord of hosts. God cannot fail in this matter. Oh, the spirit of faith. Instead of this weak knee, jelly livered kind of spineless approach of so many Christians to the situation that confronts us. What can we do? We can't do anything. Of course we can't do anything. Hell knows that better than we. But God can do something. That's the whole point. One word from God will fell the whole armies of hell. Just one word. And it needs a spirit of utter faithfulness on the part of us as God's children, however few we may be, to take hold of the Lord and to arise to do this thing. Why does the Lord say a little later, at the same time, by the prophet Zechariah, not by night, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, geez. You're up against something. All right. You let it go and go to the presence of the Lord. Your God's not very big at all. God cannot fail. And uh, you see, with this, Church history, most of remarkably agrees. Do you think of church history? Let your mind receive it. Well, travel back over church history. Go right back to Pentecost. As soon as the Lord bring in this uh, this body of the Lord Jesus, as soon as He constitutes, as soon as the heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes, and 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 it's born of God that the battle begins. Not very long afterward, they're all dispersed from Jerusalem. That's almost the end. A bit later on, there's an awful argument. Paul and Peter are head-on collision, and a few others are involved, as, as well as a terrific mess. But no, the Lord gets them through, and on they go. On it goes. You look at the church, you look at the battle. Just look at the battle. You think of the thousands and thousands that died in the arenas of Rome and elsewhere. The, the devil turned the, the Roman Empire into a virtual bloodbath to destroy this, this dwelling place. But he didn't succeed. He succeeded by another method. He let go, as you all. And we have the so-called conversion of Constantine. And with him, all the great nobles of the empire suddenly become Christianized. Not Christian, but Christianized. The church, the world into the church in one great blow. Then begins the great battle, oh, I can't stop this evening. The Polishians and the Bogomils and the Albigenses and the Waldenses and so on. All these great sections, these movements of the Spirit of God, raised by the Holy Spirit, somehow keep the light, the light of the world here. Until finally you come to the Reformation. You, you, you can see, when you look back over church history, you see a tremendous conflict raging backwards and forwards over this concept of God in what we call the church. It's a tremendous conflict. You know, the day that Luther suddenly saw what justification by faith meant was the first time the devil heard a bell tolling. Well, I won't say it's the first time. I think the first time he heard it was, of course, with Huss, when Huss died in the flames uh, on the Lake of Constance, near the Lake of Constance. 
But you see, it was the beginning of a tremendous breach in the defenses of the devil. Up to that point, he he controlled the church. It was in it was in a Babylonian exile. Darkness spread over the face of Christendom. There were only these small groups, persecuted minorities, that really had adhered to apostolic teaching, truth and practice. But you know, the day of the Reformation dawned, and what a day! It was, of course, a gain only a rebel. But my, what God did with that rebel. One monk called Luther, Martin Luther, with an absolutely unassailable faith in the word of God. And the whole hell quivers. Which sound is him this evening. And you go, oh, every time I sing that hymn, I always feel that the devil just dashes out. I think he can, he can stomach something. But that's him, he can't bear. He always feels he's gone. I always feel that. He just can't bear the thing. And in the name of Martin Luther, he finds utterly irksome. Hmm? No, see, what was it that the devil hated about Martin Luther? It wasn't a man. He could have tricked Martin Luther. No doubt it was pride. There was nothing else about Luther. We know from his biographies there was much that was failing and human about him. But it was this absolutely unassailable faith in the word of God. It didn't matter who came against him. His attitude was the word of God is going to prevail. The city of God remains. That's the thing. See, the heart of the matter is the of God. You go on. You come to others. In, you take the Anabaptists. Oh, you've done so many of you know the story of the Anabaptists. But it is one of the bloodiest and most terrible stories in the annals of church history. And yet those people in Switzerland and in Alsace and in southern Germany made the rivers run red with their blood. They were drowned in their thousands, sown into sacks and drowned. Because they were baptized again, unbaptized, again baptized. They, 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 usually their method of, of killing them, of executing them, was by drowning. And they died, men, women, and little children, in their thousands. And yet the Spirit of God, I know there were excesses in the Anabaptist movement, but you know the Spirit of God amazingly recovered something. What did he recover? He recovered the truth about baptism. It was never lost its sins. It's grown in a mighty force. So today, baptism by immersion is understood by nearly all to be the scriptural method of baptism. Even Anglican uh, scholars. Many of them today will accept, they will argue from a different point of view that infant baptism is wrong, but they will tell you that they believe that the New Testament method was generally speaking a baptism by the most. And you know, believe them. Yeah. You see, it was a truth lost in the morass of darkness and time that has been recovered by the Holy Spirit, never to be lost again. Justification by faith has become a byword. In Christendom, mm, I know there are people who, of course, are, they, they, they're Lutherans, they don't know anything about justification by faith. But nevertheless, we all know justification by faith is a, is a, is a household word with us Christians. If we don't question it, no one will say, Let us But in his day, you see, it was something that was suspicion, doubt, suspicion. I've never heard of this, it can't be right. Of course, the trouble with Martin Luther was it didn't matter where he turned the whole Bible without justification by faith. As it's natural. Because it was the thing God was recovering. The Anabaptists no doubt found baptism, I suppose, everywhere. I don't know. But certainly it was recovered, but it did not. You didn't quote that. That amazing movement of God in this country that 
spread over most of Europe. What was their great contribution? It, their contribution was of an inward union with Christ. People might disagree with the Quakers. They call them mystics. There are some church histories I've been reading more recently that won't even mention the Quakers. They're, they're non-Christian mystics. Of course, that's not Christian. You only got to go upstairs and read George Fox's messages and you'll get a great blessing on far greater blessing than what Martin Twain has a book. But their contribution was inward, intimate communion with the Lord. Listening to the voice of God. It was all about the Oxford group of former years. Listening to the voice of God, knowing the voice of God, knowing what it was to be guided and led of the Lord. They were the first people to have an open time. They allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them as he would, when he would. All right, go on, go on to the Methodists, those despised enthusiasts of the 18th century. Because he wanted the Holy Spirit to return the whole of England, Britain, and America, upside down in one great upsurge, the Holy Spirit. What happened? Yeah. Never, never lost again. Never. Yes. Great contribution of, of Methodism was new birth. New birth and sanctification. Justification by faith had not included new birth often in its teaching. But the Methodists brought it as the Quakers and its miracles in all the overlap. And it was their greatest central contribution was what they called a perfect heart. But all perfected in heart. We get all the Wesley's hymns, never to be forgotten. It's become our it's become part of our Christian, everyday Christian language. You see? These were great moves of the Holy Spirit to recovery. To recover justification by faith, which is foundational. To recover baptism, which has so much meaning for those of you who understand it. To recover, you see, these other things, this inward communion with the Lord, this personal uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit. To recover what it means to have, to be born of God, and to have a life with God. You get the brethren movement. What did the Holy Spirit do the brethren movement? He recovered the truth of the body. It doesn't matter where you turn, in brethren circles, great volume of spiritual and Holy Spirit inspired ministry on this whole question of what really the church was. It was a tremendous movement, so much so that it is spread to the far corners of the earth. I suppose, in many ways, the biggest, uh, most populous uh, group in Christendom. You can't count them, they won't count themselves. But you see, it's a tremendous movement. And of course, I know there's a very despised that we call Pentecostals. But they have a contribution. Because they have contributed in church history something which others have completely forgotten. And uh, that is that there is such a thing as tongues and healing, which did not cease with the end of the New Testament. Of course, there's much that's counterbeat, we know. But you see, they've had their contribution to make. So, you see, there have been moves, and the other moves, of course, we can't go through them all. I confine myself partly to English history, and the other continents have been others. But you see, the whole point is this all these moves of God's Holy Spirit have recovered something and has never been lost. The thing has died, the thing has become traditional, it's become denominational, sectarian in many ways. But what the truth that 
that was recovered by the Holy Spirit has become, in most cases, the corporate procession of the Church of God. Recovered. And what of today? Well, I mean, thank God if nothing's happening in England. We can look to other parts of the earth. Something started in China some 30 years ago that covered the whole face of China and all Chinese-speaking areas with something holy of God. Things happened in India. We see the Holy Spirit at work. Here's a further step. Kenneth Latourette, in his great history of Christian missions, points out that there is a kind of um, a kind of pendulum uh, swing in church history. There's an ebb and a flow. Each flow comes further than the last one. Then there's a an end, and then the, the tide's coming in. And each time that the tide comes, it carries us who are God's children further back to full recovery. Then there's an end. And then there's another great flow of God's Spirit forward. But you see, in the end, and this is the thing that thrills me, there'll be the final great flow forward, and it'll meet the Lord in the air. That'll be the end. It'll be just one great final surge of the Holy Spirit forward, and the thing will be done. That's it. Oh, of course, you could, you want to, you can stay in your your church graveyard. Uh, I've said it a number of times in Scandinavia. Could come with me and have a look at church history, church graveyard. There's a great big monument. <coughs> Here lies the Reformation, born so as a died Come a little further. Here lies the body of Quakers and born so as a died here lies the, the body of the Anabaptists, born so to die to Here lies the body of the, of the, Meth of the Methodists, born so to die to Here lies the body of, of the Methodists, born so to die to Here lies the body of Pentecostalism, born so to die to I don't want to belong to something which God did 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years ago. Talk like them, dress like them, have an organization like that. No, 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 God is the God of the I Am. God does something always for the day, in the day, for that generation and in that generation. Always. God is I Am, not I was, not I shall be. I Am that I Am. God always wants to reach out to this game generation in new ways. That's the meaning of the body. We're that person. God didn't want an organization. An organization doesn't come. If it's a 1922 model, it remains a 1922 model. Can't really have it. of course. A bit more power into it, do a few things to it. I don't know. I suppose some people are clever. But it still remains a 1922 model. You can't do much about it. Denominations are just like that. There's a 15 something model, and a 16 something model, and a 17 something model, and an 18 something model, and a 19 something. You see, I mean, it's an organization. But the body should not be like that. The body of the Lord Jesus, I think it's organic. You know my body? I have a body. You know, it's the same body I was born with in actual fact. And yet, it's not. It's completely changed. It changes every seven years. I mean, just, just it's completely changed. Because it's organic. So God is the I am. He wants to move the day he's living. And, and, I, and I remain like a little baby, a little infant, there's something terribly, radically wrong with me. A body grows. So that when I'm uh, 27, 
uh, the body that's 20 seconds. That's what's wrong with church history. I mean, we can learn this from church history. We can stay all night talking about church history. But we won't. You see, we have to note, of course, that, the, uh, that every one of these messages in Haggai are addressed to not all of Sunday, nor even the majority of God's people. They are addressed to a remnant, and a remnant who have returned. You see, it's the same in our day. All will not return. Haggai is not speaking to those who remain the great majority, who remained in the exile in Babylon and elsewhere, many of them prospering, many marvelously and wonderfully, and got established businesses and much else. No, he wasn't speaking to them. He was speaking to that little group of early pilgrim who had gone back to rebuild and reconstruct the temple and the city and the land. And so Haggai has a message not for all and sundry. That's why it's a neglected book. He has a message for those who in spirit really are returned to what God wants. To God's purpose, that's all. God's purpose. Well, he's not interested in, in any other kind of loyalty. Not interested in any other kind of, of uh, standard. They're only interested in what God wants. In what is the purpose of God. And in the particular phase of God's purpose in the day in which they live. And I think that that is very, very important indeed. We need to pray that we may be numbered amongst such. I, if the Lord comes back, I would love to be in that, in that company, whoever they are, that are in that final if there's anything I want to be in, I want to be in what God is doing in my day and my generation. I don't want to be in something that God did 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or 200, or 400 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. I want to be in what God is doing now, don't you? Oh, to meet the Lord like that, and to be of real use to the Lord. I lived in Haggai's day, I wouldn't want to be wallowing in my wealth in Babylon. I want it. You live in the most enjoyable life in the world. I want to be back with the others, loners that they were. Back with them all in Jerusalem. Oh, there'd be hardness, there'd be limitation, there'd be restrictions, there'd be discipline. But oh, to see the top stone go on, see the glory of God in that temple. That's the thing I want. I want to see it. To be able one day, not in a superior or proud way, to say, by the Grace of God, I don't know how or why I was there. I <coughs> I've often wondered when the Lord, oh, this is another digression, I've often wondered what happened there the day the Lord Jesus was taken into the temple. I wonder if he was there. Similarly, I have not But I'd love to know, were there any there? What a marvelous thing it would have been if, uh, like those others who looked, for that day of the Lord, that the, the redemption of Israel to appear, to actually be there by the Spirit when he came. Suddenly, as suddenly shall the Lord appear in the temple. 
What a marvellous thing that must have been. Supposing your old Simeon had got tired of it all and thought, whoa, 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 whoa. I should take another 200 years, you'd see, before this comes to pass. He might have been out that day. But no, he was there. And Abel was saying, no, Lord, let us not thy servant depart. Let my eyes have seen my salvation. But that's how we want to be. Just in the actual stream, the center stream of God's purpose at the point when we're needed and when things are happening. Not just to be spectators, but by the grace of God to be really with it. Well, I, I think we must end, but I'd like to just end on this note. You see, even the terms are, and this is the whole point return is not enough. You see, that's what Haggai is saying. You see, this is the actual key and theme of Haggai. You see, God doesn't just want returnees. He wants, he wants builders. That's the point. And just want people sitting there all building their own homes, having a good time. They've returned. They've, they've left uh, much behind them that, that could have given them security and prosperity and much else. They've left it all. But God saying to them, look here, this is the point. You haven't seen the point. You've come back, it's not that long. The whole purpose of your coming back is to build. God not only wants that they return, he wants actual building. He wants actual building. He wants to see not only a foundation, he wants to see stone laid on stone until the house is complete. Now, you see, that's why mm, mm, the Lord stirs up their spirit. As soon as they're obedient, the Lord stirs up their spirit. And what happened? The house gets built. The Lord says to them, I'm with you. God is so interested in the building. Once they react and respond and, and are obedient, then the spirit of the Lord comes. He stirs up their spirit, and the work goes on. They work, it says, on the house of the Lord, their God. They completed it in four years. They left it in 16, in ruin, steady. But in four years, the thing went right through to its completion. Now, you see, that's what God wants. That's why he says, be strong and work, for I am with you, says the Lord according to the word that I covenant to give you when you were in Egypt. That's a very wonderful, wonderful thing. You see what the Lord really means to us? We will say more about that perhaps next week. But you really, the Lord is saying is, look, you've got that. If you've got that. That's wonderful. But that's what I want. Let's get on with the work. I don't just want people to come back and understand what I want. I want people to get into it. On with the building. Let's see the stones being fitted to the other stones. Let's see the building going up. So it's all. You see, because I am with you. Be strong and work. Be strong and work. I am with you. According to the word that I come with you. When you are in Egypt, isn't that wonderful? That goes right back to the Passover. I am with you. Some of us sometimes feel that when we were first saved, the Lord said, I am with you, but today we feel, oh no, so much. 
They're so weary with the Lord's work. They're so tired of this. They're so tired that he can't be with us anymore. But the Lord says, I am with you. According to the word I come with you. At your salvation. Like at your beginning. I'm still with you. My spirit, he says, remaineth among you. So that's a very wonderful word. I wish there were a few more here and here and here. Not the wonderful in the way it's been given. I mean the word itself. This book of Haggai is a wonderful book. And uh, I wish that every single person in this part of God's family were really uh, here to hear the word. Uh, to hear that. And to uh, take it in, to go home and to think about it and read about it. There's a bit more we've got to look at next week about some of the causes for despondency, which are very revealing, and a few other things. But you see, the point is that God has a now let's not just see the purpose and commit ourselves to it. Let's really ask the Lord to help us to be obedient so that we can get on with the work. Because in fact, you know, the completion of this, of this great job of worldwide building that the Holy Spirit's seeking to do, so the top stone can go on and the Lord can return, could be quite a swift work. Quite a swift work. You know, it's a very interesting scripture when God gets to work, he can do things in a few months. Do you remember that John the Baptist's whole world, world-long ministry was fulfilled in six months? The world had never heard or seen a ministry like John the Baptist. It was six months in Judah, and he was gone. It's amazing. The Lord Jesus, three and a half years at the most. A single design. In a generation, the house may be completed, it may not be our generation, I'm not interested whether it is or not, I should hope it would be, I'd like it to be, uh, to see the Lord return, I'd like to see him return, and so on, but it may not be, it may be another 100, 200 years old, but the whole point is, God has some pleasure recovery that's in the office, the present, and you and I have got to be in it, not just to understand it, but to be in it, that's the point. We apologise to the listener for the deterioration in the tape quality at the end. This was due to interference on the master tape when it was originally made. We do apologise.